Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rehab Podiatrist podcast with me, Alex Murray. I'm a podiatrist and strength and conditioning coach based in Canberra, Australia. And I'm really excited to uh, talk uh, on this episode about injury prevention. It's a topic that comes up quite a lot with patients. They come in, they, they want to prevent injuries from happening again. They're, they're sore now or they're coming in because they've had an injury and they're like, I don't want that to happen again. It was horrendous. But when we have a look at the literature, it's really not that simple where, you know, we see biomechanics not being a risk factor. So we, we don't address them. We see training errors. Everyone says they're a big risk factor, uh, but we find no consistent results when changing them. We've got acute chronic workload ratios. We've got a whole bunch of these other metrics and it doesn't seem to be there's be a silver bullet. Footwear very consistently doesn't doesn't show that it prevents injuries. We have orthotics uh, or custom foot orthotics, which can help in very specific populations, but really, again, doesn't have a wider applicability. We hear about things like psychological readiness, and we've got people like Tim Gabbett who are out there saying, you know, we should be pushing our patients to do more and more, while we've got traditional me- messaging saying, well, if they do too much, that's the training error that... Uh, that creates the injury. So it's a little bit of a, a confusing space uh, to be in if, you, if you're trying to look in and get a, a good understanding. So what I wanted to do is get someone on to talk about it, try and make sense of this, this mess. And who I've uh, who I found is a, a good friend, Travis Pollan. I should say Dr. Travis Pollan, uh, who's a assistant professor in exercise science at Jefferson University. And obviously he would do a much better job at introducing himself so hello travis thanks for coming on hello alex thank you for having me and awesome work on that intro thank you (laughs) you really encapsulated the problem and hopefully i can shed some light hopefully yeah before we we obviously dive in do you want to talk a bit more about yourself um your your qualifications your experience sure so as you mentioned i'm uh, an assistant professor in exercise science at Thomas Jefferson University. Uh, I've been teaching exercise science for a couple of years now. Prior to that, I did my PhD in rehabilitation sciences, where my research focused on risk factors for injury in competitive swimmers. So my my bread and butter is injury prevention. It's what uh, <laughs> it's what I like to do. Um, reading about it, uh, chatting about it. So. Um, I think that we really connected on this through a, a master class that I created for Physio Network on injury prevention, um, where I kind of did like a, a pretty deep dive uh, over a couple of hour presentation on how injuries happen and how, how we can prevent them. So that's kind of the, the, the area of research. And, and as you mentioned, some of the risk factors, biomechanics, training load, um, exercise as prevention. Uh, I've, I've taken a pretty deep dive into these things. And so while I'm not a podiatrist myself, my, my hands-on background is as a personal trainer. Um, I, I feel like I have a good BS detection meter for things that, you know, seem like they, they, we want them to work. Uh, but from a research standpoint, like we just find that the, the, the findings are very conflicting or, Maybe things that we think work don't work at all when you actually drill down into it with the research. Yeah, that that's exactly why I got you on the bullshit meter. We were we were talking before all the whole podcast. It's just going to be 
just me just saying things to you and then you just saying bullshit or not bullshit that's perfect <laughs> it's all gonna be bullshit then just like magnetic insults um and you're like actually um what i think's uh probably a useful place to start having having yeah watched watched your masterclass sort of gone through um sort of the, the deeper dive uh is what can you provide sort of an update really on what we're talking about we're talking about injury prevention and the process of trying to prevent it because we often think that it's a case of we well, have an injury like someone's twisted their ankle someone's had a um, and you know uh, they're starting to get an overuse injury in a tendon and you sort of think how do i take away the negative thing from that mm -hmm. it's not from yeah from going through some of your work it's it's not that that simple can you can you talk more to that yeah so so i think the the simplest explanation when we get injured is well the injury was because of this one thing and it's it's like a nice cute story that we can tell ourselves and then we can say well if we just fix that one thing then we won't get injured again and what we have found over maybe the last 30 years is that it's not that simple and each every like 10 years i feel like it gets more complicated <laughs> um but it, it's getting more accurate i think so if you rewind like 20, 25 years, there, there was this model of injury that came out and it kind of showed this linear pathway where like you start with the person who has some predisposing factors. So that could be things like they're older, um, maybe the first specific injury, it's related to their sex. Um, they've had previous injuries. They have low skill at the, the sport or activity that they're doing. So all of these factors can predispose them to injury. And then, but if they just sat on the couch, they wouldn't get injured, right? It's the exposure to playing the sport or doing the activity that actually puts them in a position where they're susceptible to getting injured. And then when they're playing the sport, they get injured because there's some inciting event uh, that happens where they're biomechanically in a weird position um, and they, their, their opponent is doing something funky that they're reacting to and pop goes the Achilles. So, but the way, like that was a helpful starting point for us to say, oh, it's not just because they are a woman that they tore their ACL because, you know, women tear their ACL more than men. It's all of these things factors it's like it's this laundry list of things that can predispose them and then expose them in their environment to the potentially inciting event occurring so that that was helpful but then what we realized was it's not just like you start at the beginning you're predisposed you then exposed and then you get injured because every time you engage in the sport or activity again that whole risk profile at the beginning changes so as you gain more fitness or as you as you repeatedly expose yourself to the activity you gain more fitness which in turn modifies your risk factors as you maybe get injured and then you that changes your risk factors um so so the idea is that the person is not this like static snapshot where they come to our office we measure them once and that's their risk you know we can create this profile and it just it's this snapshot in time, 
But that's all, that's all it is because it doesn't account for the fact that the person is constantly changing. So what we realized was, okay, well, we, in our conception of injuries, we need to better account for how this person is constantly changing over time as a result of the repeated exposure to participation. So they keep playing the sport, they keep not getting injured, or maybe they do get injured, and then that feeds back into their risk profile. So that was about 15 years ago that that kind of thought process emerged, and that was very helpful. But then what we realized about five or so years ago was like, it's not that simple again. Because what that model sort of showed was like, it's this, you just add everything up. You know, you add up all of the risk factors and then the injury happens when the, the risk factors exceed the, the sum, pop goes the Achilles. But what we realized was it's not that like this thing begets this thing begets this thing, but rather that you have to put kind of all of those risk factors in a blender and shake them up. Like that's what's happening. And everything is affecting everything else. So they, they call that um, dynamic systems. They call it complex systems. It's basically just this idea of instead of calling them risk factors, they call them now a web of determinants that are bi-directionally, bi-directionally interacting with each other all the time. Um, and, and not just looking at like the, the left to right linear causal fact, like causal analysis, but more so this idea of like looking for patterns. So the injury isn't just like a this plus this equals an injury. It's more like you are looking for, it's, it's more like this complex um, emergent phenomenon that happens when all of these web of determinant factors interact. Uh, and so maybe an example that I would give would be, let's say that a person has had a previous injury which has then caused their range of motion to be reduced and their strength to be reduced, which then they are exposed to a high training load, higher than they're used to because they have a very demanding sport coach. And it's all of those things that interact together that then contribute to the injury. So it's not just, well, you had a previous injury, therefore you're going to have a, a new one. Like, yeah, when you do a study, you can look at, a risk factor analysis single factor and say a previous injury increases your risk but it's really this pattern of mul trying to understand multiple factors um, that then further explain the injury so you can't just say well i had a previous injury so i'm doomed it's like well what was your rehab like and what's your what you know how's your range of motion how's your strength what's your training load what's the coaching like trying to consider all of those things and, and many more factors that we can get into when you're trying to understand why an injury happened and then how you can prevent a second one. Mm. It's, it's, we sort of just went on a small roller coaster because it's just like, oh yeah, like great, we're on the, and then you're like, not that simple. And you're like, okay, next one, not that simple. It, it, there's just a lot of, lot of growth and I'm, I'm, I'm sure as well in the next five, 10 years, we'll find that it's not as simple as we think it is now yeah i it was it was funny for me like discovering these models as i went through my phd because i think i found like the the 2007 one first and then i was like great this is awesome this is what i'm going to base my research on and then like a year before i started my study i found the the dynamic systems complex systems one and i'm like well shoot my my single factor risk analysis isn't really going to 
account for the, this complex web of determinants, but also I don't have enough people in my study to do the analysis right. So therefore I have to do the simpler one. Um, so, you know, the, the evolution happened sort of before my own eyes as, as these papers were coming out while I was in the, the throes of trying to conduct this study. Yeah. Only, only to find that, well, I have 37 people. I really needed like 800 people to do this study well. So I'm going to publish it in, you know, the fourth journal that I submit it to. And um, that'll be that. Mm. It's interesting because yeah, you sort of get like hamstrung in a way to, because the more complex the, the study needs to be, the more difficult it is. But it's, it's interesting what you're talking about. You know, when I'm, what I'm sort of pulling out is that we're no longer looking at things static. It's, it's looking at them as living, adaptable organisms. And it's sort of focusing on how they adapt to the demands and it's not so much, you said, sort of, it's not so much about things adding together and sort of we talked about at the start, the premise is always, you know, how do we find something and take it away? What you're sort of talking about there is that we're almost in ways adding things that are positive. So adding rehab, adding strengthening protocols, adding things that are going to help enhance their range of motion back again. And then it's comparing them to what's being also demanded of them as well. And so taking away, you can right. also look at taking away, but then there's also that, that factor of uh, adapting. So you might say, well, we don't actually have to overall take things away, but we might take something away on a certain day and let that, that living sort of person um, actually rest and recover mm -hmm. and reduce their fatigue. Right. And I like, to, I like to think about it as more of like a temporary modification. So... You know, when you say, well, they're injured, so, you know, and, and they got injured because they, we think because they were wearing this shoe wear. Well, sure, we could switch their footwear in the short term, but it doesn't mean that the, sh the shoes that they were wearing before were bad and wrong and that they should never wear those again. It's like, well, yeah, if they're causing pain in this moment, let's try something different. But it's not like uh, that's bad and it should never we should never put them in that shoe again. It's like we're not going to put them in that shoe. We're going to put them in a different shoe right now, which will hopefully modify their symptoms and maybe allow them to continue doing some aspect of what they were doing before. Maybe not all of it. And just kind of trying to play with all of these things at once at, and hopefully build them back up to where they were before or better. Mm. It's interesting. I guess the... The example I always, or the, the analogy I always think about is sort of related to cooking. Uh, and I know not everyone cooks, so it might not sort of always land. But I, I, like, I, I like what you said about the blender, where we're sort of throwing everything together and then blending it up. And I think about what you're sort of talking about is, well, if you're baking a savory pancake or a crepe, and you start throwing in ham and cheese and things and you blend it up it quite and you put it in it quite works if you're looking for a you know a, a sweeter pancake you know you're, you're obviously going to use more sugar and you're sort of looking at what you need specifically for that task you're looking at what ingredients you have available and you're sort of going well nothing's really positive or negative it's just about what this situation needs and would benefit from but also acknowledging the fact that when we throw that in, it interacts with everything else. So That's, we, we, yeah. it, we throw it in. It's not a case of, well, okay, this is just an additive. Well, you know, we think about, you know, if we've ever seen every American cooking um, viral 
uh, clip or those those ones in America where it was like the the Taduck and the guy and he just like they just kept adding like Jack Daniels sauce and bacon <laughs> and like everything gets better with bacon we just kept adding adding more and more bacon and there comes a point where then that well that's obviously not just wholly positive bacon by itself is seen as something quite positive uh, in the same way we can think about you know you're like okay great calf raises or a specific strengthening protocol or you know there's a lot of these things that would seem great in isolation but as you've sort of highlighted if we're putting it on someone who is already overworked by their coach that could actually be a net negative right and that, that's a really tricky thing because we have reason to believe good reason that exercise is helpful for injury prevention and rehab but it's like well we have to factor in like let, let's let's take injury prevention healthy athletes they're doing a bunch of training already if we just add on a bunch of nordics to what they're doing they're going to be very sore that could impact their their practice their performance but it, it could also fatigue them to the point where it becomes unsafe to practice after that so then you have to look at it and say well what you know what effect is this going to have is there something that we can do differently? Can we uh, reduce the number of Nordics that we're asking them to do? Can we progress them more slowly? Can we put them at the end of practice instead of at the beginning? So after they've done their sprinting, after they've done their high-speed running where it might be risky to pre-fatigue them, and then what effect does that have when we change the order of this on the preventive effect? Mm. So it's a, it's, a, it's a lot more difficult uh, a lot more individual, but we, we can start to understand why then the studies are really always not super helpful because, and, and they're kind of confusing because they're, they're looking at the single risk factors and they're going in and they're, they're, they're just, here's, here's the one thing we're going to give them. And what do you know? Some people reduce their injury risk. Some people don't. Uh, I guess it's all, it's not helpful. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the challenging thing because we want to know what's going to work for the person in front of us. And, and the research is based on groups and the, and it's, and then it's like, well, why don't we just look at, I was looking in, into this yesterday. Why don't we just look at responder analyses? So like try to find the, the subset of characteristics that predispose someone to experiencing uh, a beneficial effect of the intervention. And it's like, well, that's really hard to do from a research standpoint um, because it's hard to dichotomize somebody as a responder or not. And, you know, the more factors that you look at, the easier it is to find something that you think is the reason why that they responded well. Um, and, and so it's, it's tricky to interpret for sure. And also when you do the research, the research has to be done in a well-controlled setting, right? So it had, you know, you only want to look at a couple things at a time. You, you want to have a lot of control over the situation, but that's not how the real world is. So, uh, we we have this challenge where we have something that works in a research study and it sort of stops there from a research standpoint. It doesn't get tried again in a more pragmatic or real world setting. So then when we try to adopt it, we're not able to recreate those very rigid guide, you know, the framework that it occurred inside the study and then it fails. And it's like, well, is that our fault or the researcher's fault? I guess it's, I mean, it's everybody's fault. There's a, there's a gap between in the implementation of getting it from these, these rigid conditions to working in the real world 
with, you know, people have different expertise when they're going to do the intervention. The, the athletes themselves have different motivations. Um, there's different compliance, perhaps. There's different resources. There's different time. So it it's tough. Uh, mm. it, it, it's really hard to say, well, this worked in the research. This is the program. This is the intervention that I'm going to use with this person in front of me. And I, you know, you might have reason to believe that it's going to work, but you really have to look at all those things. Is the person in front of me very similar to the people in the study that I'm basing this off of? Um, and if not, and maybe there's not, maybe there's no research that you can find and you have to extrapolate that out to the person in front of you. Like, well, I think that even though this person's different, they're similar enough that we can apply the findings. Mm. But it might, I, might not always be the case. And there, there might not be research available and you might have to, take a leap mm. well i guess that's that's a, a, a interesting question for you in terms of the implementation because i guess where we sort of end up with with what we see online is people sort of go oh there is no evidence uh in this in this space so i'm just gonna make it up and see what works for my patient and run run with that if, we, if we've got some of these studies and we've got sort of conflicting results on these studies about, you know, training and, and, mm -hmm. and what, what we do, is there any, obviously being much, much more familiar with the research, is there, what would be a guide to trying to take these, these results and implementing them? Because it's sounding like really what, what we're doing is it's, it's understanding the individual and trying to get them best prepared for the sport without over overloading them so it seems like there's a huge amount that we have to do with the with the patient mm -hmm. yeah so like like the question of well how can we apply these findings to the patient in front of us but I, I think it goes to well can we find evidence that it works in a similar group of people and can we set up the environment so that it's similar to what they did in the research study as, as best we can or acknowledge that hey we are we're realizing that we're moving the nordics from before practice like they were in the research study to after the practice and being being mindful that if you don't apply it in the same way that it was done then you should maybe be mindful that you might not get the same results mm. i guess is there is there benefit why well, i guess but this is sort of where we look to institutions and teams and people that have implemented specific approaches because mm -hmm. what they're doing is they're they're doing a real life implementation study realistically right. they're looking at the research and going okay these people did uh nordics or um a strength program before training where that doesn't work for us because i think that's going to fatigue people with our sort of training so we're going to do it afterwards we're going to monitor our athletes we're going to see what what happens sort of a a, a focus on understanding the research and then understanding you're adapting it and then testing and trialing it i guess that sort of to me seems the most intuitive is is that sort right. of what what if knowing the research is that what you would be doing as well looking at going you know, yeah yeah and it's it's tricky though if you you know if you have a team then you can actually do that uh and well you have a team and you have statistical prowess you can keep track of that, be, be careful what you're changing and see what effect that has with serial monitoring and measurement. So, so for example, let's say that you 
you're 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 doing you have a hamstring injury problem in your team and you want to incorporate Nordics into the training program well if you think that the the reason that Nordics are effective is because they increase e eccentric hamstring strength and, and like maybe that is the reason or maybe that's not <laughs> or maybe that's part of it. like I think it's actually more complicated than that which I don't even understand but there's fascicle length but tangent so if you believe that well the the protective effect is through increased eccentric hamstring strength well you can do the intervention and then measure the player's eccentric hamstring strength before couple weeks later, a couple weeks after that, and see if the intervention is having the effect that you want. And then that can be a proxy for, okay, well, I'm not going to know about the injury numbers until the end of the season, but at least I can say that my player's hamstrings are getting stronger eccentrically, and that was the, the effect that I wanted to have. And by doing it after practice instead of before, my strength gains seem to be similar to when I did it before or what I'm seeing in the research of the, the strength gains that people are having from this intervention. So the timing doesn't matter. Uh, or maybe I can find research that has looked at this, the timing of the, the inter intervention before or after practice. So all of those things can be helpful, but you need numbers. So if you're one rehab podiatrist with, you know, a N equals one or just a, like a case series, it becomes harder to say like from a very objective standpoint, which is what like where you get practitioners saying, well, this is what I do and this is what works, but it's such a biased. It's like, that's not, they think I'm evidence-based, you know, I'm, I'm keeping track of this, but it's just, it's not to the quality of what you would do obviously in a research study. Um, and you don't even, like, we don't even realize that we are biased but it's 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 hard mm. i guess it also speaks to the fact that there's when we talked about there being so many influences in on injury how many people have you treated with a protocol or gotten them stronger and then they've just incidentally not had an injury again right so then you take your post hoc fallacy and you go well i got them stronger and they didn't get injured again therefore it must have been this strength adaptation like it must have been the calf raises mm. and it's like there were so many factors that changed when this person got injured and came to you that you can't say for sure. You can say for sure it was all of the things, but you can't say for sure it was any one of the things. So yeah. that's where like this more comprehensive approach has to be considered of, all right, what all did we change? Well, uh, we changed, you know, we, well, we think we changed their strength. Did we actually measure that? We, they did calf raises. We think that th that means that they got stronger. Maybe they did or they didn't. Maybe they did calf raises and uh, their, their confidence in, in relation to moving their ankle in that motion got better. And that was what contributed to them not getting injured again. Um, or maybe the, the, the confidence that they built through the therapeutic alliance with the practitioner of just build, building up more confidence in movement um, and, and the education that they received, like it, it could have been all of those things. So it's, that's where it lends itself to the idea of, well, let's, let's do all of these things, right? Let's get them stronger. Let's get them more mobile if they need that. Let's increase their confidence and psychological readiness. Let's monitor their training. Um, not just give them an orthotic and send them on their way. 
Yeah, and I, I think I think you you, you said right at the end there exactly what sort of what I was thinking. Where it's it's if we're looking at preventing injury as individual practitioners in you know when someone comes in and says, "Hey, you know, how do I stop this from happening again?" It's not so much like resting on one thing. It's looking them right. as a whole unit and going, "What are all of these areas that we can possibly make uh, a a change?" and say okay you know we can optimize your training load we can those shoes are old change them you're getting pain when you're doing this let's stop doing this and add something else um we think we can build up your your strength uh so let's monitor that and let's build the strength and we're sort of just trying to hit on all of these individual points and just being almost in a way comfortable with not having an answer and going, well, this is the one thing or this is actually going to have the result. I mean, we've been beaten over the head with this for ages. You know, the whole injury, injury reduction n- nomenclature um, sort of push. Of, we're, not, we're not preventing injuries. We're reducing um, the chances. I guess it's sort of mm-hmm. just getting comfortable with that approach of we're not going to have the answer, but we can do all of these things that are going to best prepare and I guess right. the the other side of it is is the fact that if you know you're playing a sport, uh, and you know we're just watching the World Cup at the moment, you're seeing all these slide tackles happen, and you're seeing, you know, people getting hit and kicked and tripping and falling, and it can just something, you know, un- bad luck can happen as well, and a risk can come back. So in in a way, yeah. it's it's a it's it is, I can see what people are saying. We're saying injury reduction because we're not going to prevent all injuries. Um, but it's sort of getting getting settled and comfortable with that idea and, and in a way as well getting settled and comfortable getting our patients settled and comfortable with that idea right because they might come to you and maybe they've ha- worked with another practitioner before who gave them a very simple answer and a very simple intervention and maybe that worked for them and maybe that's what they're looking for from you and so you, you just you telling them what you just told me like that might not resonate with them as well. Like they're saying, I want to prevent this injury from happening again. And you saying, well, we can reduce your risk, but I can't promise you that it won't happen again. Uh, I can, I can say that in my experience, it seems like when, when I've worked with people before, we're able to reduce the frequency of recurrence and we're able to maybe reduce the intensity of, of a repeat episode, but it can happen again. Here are the, the many things that we can do, um, as you mentioned, monitoring training load, getting stronger, increasing psychological readiness, and the, and the list goes on. And hopefully they are, will be receptive to that. Um, I mean, what, what's your experience? I'm sure you've, you've encountered these people before, right, who want this very simple explanation. And then you... I, I imagine you have to gradually, if they come to you in with that frame of mind, you have to gradually introduce, you know, you can't just open up the fire hose at them <laughs> and, and change their worldview in, in one encounter. Um, but, but trying to slip in that education um, and, and try to help them come to terms with the idea that it's not going to be a simple fix and there's no guarantees yeah i guess it, it depends on the individual i find i mean this is just with anything when you try when i find i'm trying to to talk to people about something new so much of it is drawing upon their previous experience uh so like if they've had if they've done this they've changed one thing but they've you know very clearly also told me that they've changed five or six other things in the course you know they've changed teams they've 
moved competitions they've changed the ground they've changed their boots you know they sort of went oh okay and you can sort of draw in all of these other aspects you know they changed position they stopped um you know doing heavy heavy tackles because they've changed the the level of the competition over time like we i can draw in all those factors and say well you know if we're thinking about you know you overloading your achilles or twisting your ankle you know well you're not getting as fatigued now you're not you know you're not putting yourself in a position where you're going to get get injured and sometimes that starts to because it's drawing upon their their experience sometimes that kind of starts to click uh, mm-hmm. sometimes it's about you know them having new experiences so sometimes it's about sort of going in and saying well what if we you know maybe looking at it from a more positive perspective and saying not going oh we can't prevent your in- injury but actually there's more than one thing that we can do to help and mm-hmm. as we start to sort of do more and more and more and they start to open up and go like, I'm not looking for one thing I'm looking for many things that can help we sort of talk about you know how why an injury you know occurs an ankle sprain you know you're landing funny okay so you know if we're stronger you are um you know you're you're going to be in that position you're potentially going to be more able to recover from it if you're fitter and you're pacing yourself well you're not going to be as fatigued uh mm-hmm. if you're not making it uh, like this insane tackle in like the last five minutes where you know everyone just absolutely rooted from playing a full full game you know you're less likely to then have someone land on top of you um you know we can sort of talk through all those things and then sometimes it sort of works then backwards to then say well this is also why we can't predict uh, we can't prevent injury because we can't also then stop the other person from doing that insane tackle at the last in the last five five minutes uh we can't always completely control the fact that there's a pothole in the ground that's going to then make you twist your ankle uh beyond a point where you're you know where your body's incapable of recovering from that uh, right so right. That, that's sort of where i found to be successful is drawing upon their experiences and either having to draw upon experiences they've had or giving them new ones uh to to then be able to ref, to reflect on and, and sometimes as well it's asking questions um of like how does an injury occur or like if we think about the you know, ankle sprain is always an easy one because it's literally they're twisting their ankle overuse injuries are harder but you know sometimes exploring mm-hmm. and asking questions of how they think injuries occur and we can start to get the way that they're thinking is what is, is sort of my experience and then we can start to explore some of those points and sometimes very when you ask when you're asking more questions of them and getting understanding of what they know i've always found it points kind of jump out you a little bit more uh and if you're not finding those points you go okay you know like you you move on you know you don't you know not to press uh sometimes you know it's more therapeutic for us to sort of say our spiel and then be like you know i'm i'm done right <laughs> i've said, I I've just, said my piece I just, yeah i gave you the 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 golden nugget now you know you have it and you can take it or leave it it's like well that that's probably not going to work. But like you said, if you can ask them questions to, to come upon an understanding on their own, r- relate it to what they already understand of, oh, you know, I, I see why the injury happened because, or, or I, I see that injuries are, are not totally preventable because of sometimes it's a fluky thing. We can't control the other person's behavior. Sometimes it, there's a risk that needs to be taken in the, the last minute of the game. Uh, and, and recognizing that, and then they can say, okay, I, I see what you're saying that 
you know, we're not going to be able to prevent all of these injuries, but what can you do to help me reduce my risk? Mm. So sort of switch tracks a little bit here. Um, when we're talking about injury prevention, so we're talking quite globally about all of the, the risk factors and how everything sort of works together. It's not that simple. We have to look at the individual, but also when we're looking at preventing different types of injury, I remember, you know, you were talking about primary injuries, secondary injuries, tertiary mm -hmm. injuries, sort of narrowing down on what we're doing. Can you, can you speak a bit more about that? Yeah. So th this was like a really helpful categorization of things for me when I stumbled upon it. And, and the way that I might describe it now, like different people have different ways of of precisely defining it but the way that i talk about it is that primary prevention is the prevention of the first injury so the person is not injured and we are trying to prevent injury from happening in the first place secondary prevention then is identifying people who are just at the beginning stages of an injury so i think in some countries they call those niggles um, but basically it, it's like something that unless we're going and looking for it, it would be subclinical, like it might fly under our radar, but it's something where if we can identify it, then we can prevent it from worsening. So that prevention of worsening is secondary injury prevention. It's already happened a little bit, and now we're identifying it early on in the process before it snowballs into something big. And then tertiary prevention is the injury has happened. It's a full-blown injury, but now we are trying to prevent the injury from happening again. So that's re-injury prevention. And the way the first step is, well, let's rehabilitate them. Let's return them. Let's go through the process of returning them back to participation, sport, performance, that continuum. And then from there, let's try to prevent it from happening again. Prevent in air quotes because of what we've talked about. Prevention is the colloquial term that we use for it, but it's really about reducing or mitigating or managing or controlling risk. Um, and, and so for, for most, you know, if you're working as a clinician, you're most of the time seeing people who are already injured uh, and then trying to engage in that tertiary side of re-injury prevention. Because I think when you, when you, um, I think that's a good, that's a good uptake because I guess, yeah, everyone does explain it a little bit differently, uh, but I like the way that sort of it's broken down a bit more because sometimes people look at secondary as being the injury has already happened, having that sort of secondary step and tertiary, having that step in between of niggles and then re-injury prevention is, is quite helpful. The first thing that like jumps out to me there though immediately is how we do our research because it seems like a lot of research is focused on primary injury prevention so trying to find those mm -hmm. individuals that, or, or trying to essentially prevent all injuries from happening, which it seems like a noble goal. Uh, but that sort of seems like where we don't find a lot of results. But then when we're looking at secondary and tertiary uh, injury prevention, it seems like that's already something that we can hone in a, a lot more on because you have someone who has uh, an injury. So we already know they're a subset of a population. And then mm -hmm. there are also people as well that have something that can be actively 
much more managed. So we're seeing someone with a niggle, you can sort of go, okay, what do we do once a niggle occurs? Do you know, we have a much more of a, uh, an environment where we can go, okay, we need to make sure we drop their training load for a period of time or we avoid this type of irritating load we um, then monitor as we go up we check for strength deficits tertiary is the same you know you said you said at the start okay someone's injured reduce range of motion reduce strength reduced confidence in their movement and then you put them back under a a coach that's going to slam them we're going to get injured it it seems like that now that we've got that sort of uh, ability to to separate people into different groups it sort of makes a bit more sense where we could intervene a bit more right so so yeah and i think that the big thing there like you said is the the monitoring so we can let's see where we're at well ideally you know in in the the perfect world before the first injury you have a rich uh data set on this person of their their side to side strength um mobility coordination flexibility all the things so that when they get injured then you can say well here's where they're at at the time of injury now i want to make sure that i get them back to where they were when they were uninjured or even better depending on what whatever it was that happened but most of the time we don't have that pre-injury data and so we're relying on side to side discrepancies and trying to even those things out which are notoriously not that helpful because when you get injured and sit on your butt for a month, then you're, the leg that's supposed to be the gold standard deconditions and you're just measuring the injured side against the deconditioned side. And you, you, know, you say, well, we have a limb symmetry index of 90%, therefore they're ready to go. And it's like, but they're weak on both sides now. <laughs> um, so, so then you have to you know, compare to some age and sex-based norm, or maybe you have a data set, you know, best case scenario, you have a data set maybe from your team that you can say, well, this is what people body weight similar look like. Um, but these are just, these are hard things to do uh, without that prior that baseline data. Hmm. So it's, it's, we're operating generally as clinicians without a lot of this data, like people come in unless they're part of a, quite an established team. I can't think of many sports um, in, in Australia that are not at a pro level that will have that data. Right. Because, you know, the money's not there, the time's not there, the staff's not, not there to do that. Mm-hmm. But when we're thinking about then preventing these sort of further injuries, one of the sort of approaches that we sort of get that's sort of coming to, to the forefront now is is sort of getting them ready back for their sport and sort of going, okay, if we're focusing on returning them and figuring out what are the demands of their sport. So let's say soccer, right? Because it's, or, or football or from, from wherever you're from, but there uh, has been quite a, a popular uh, topic at the moment. You can look at the demands of the sport and go, this is what that person needs to be able to do. So we don't have a strength measurement. We don't say if we, if we get this or that, but that's kind of actually what you're sort of talking about as well. Not always the focus. Someone could be strong, uh, but that's not the, that's not going to be the the single thing that helps them Mm -hmm. if we're taking that sort of approach where we just go okay this is the game that they're going to play these are the this is their position 
this is how they're going to this is going to what what they need to do and we sort of then have this focus of well both kind of in a way rehabilitation injury prevention kind of then overlap quite a fair bit we focus yes. just on their readiness and then we're consistently sort of going testing them each each step of the way where we're building them up and going okay here we are here's the here's the task that we're going to do they can accomplish that okay next step they can accomplish that next step and then slowly rebuild and and monitor them throughout that process that seems to be the most uh, the best the best way and then looking at when we're sending them back looking for those niggles and looking for those sort of then small small sort of points where they might be subclinical before the injury occurs and then taking them back building them up again that seems like the most logical logical way to go about it yeah no i i think that's a phenomenal approach and i think that's a it's like very patient-centered or athlete-centered right because we're focusing on performance and luckily somehow miraculously most of the things that help if you if you focus on performance most of the things that you do are going to be the things that help from a rehab standpoint right uh so and that's the same with injury prevention from the beginning if we this injury prevention program isn't just going to prevent injuries it's going to enhance their performance so that's where you should probably focus on and if you're trying to sell it to somebody is more from the performance enhancement side because people aren't worried about an injury if it hasn't happened yet but you can say this program is going to boost your performance and it will also help with your injury by the way even though i know you don't care about that um but yeah focusing on the and i think that's what you just described is where oftentimes rehab falls short because yeah, like like I'm I'm pretty familiar with ACL rehab or, or late stage ACL rehab where we have a bunch of tests. We have them hop on one leg, we have them kick into our hand. That, well that's the worst, but we, we maybe we, we measure their, their isometric strength and um, we we say, well, we they've uh, reached the threshold that we want them uh, from a strength standpoint and from a power standpoint and, and from a range of motion standpoint and hopefully from a psychological readiness standpoint as well as we talked about. And then we say, well, they must be good to go. But like where we're missing is, well, how to like have, I think most clinicians probably don't have the expertise and they, they can't necessarily have the expertise in all the sports, but it's like, that's where the, the communication and collaboration have to happen with the people who do have the expertise in the sports to say, okay, you know, I've gotten them to where I can get them based on my knowledge of rehab and the sport, but I'm admittedly not an expert in the sport, the soccer, the football, the, the whatever. So now I need to understand from you, like, well, actually this should happen way before. The, the conversation should happen. I'm not an expert. What are their demands and how can we work on that in rehab? And then as rehab is winding down and return to sport is ramping up, how can we make sure that the like we've prepared them adequately and that we're continu they're continuing to get the right guidance in that very late stage where they're close to returning to sport and this the training is very specific and and i think that's a lot of times where there's a big gap of yeah they you know they look good on our end our our strength and power measures 
therefore they must be ready to go back to practice. And it's like, well, wait a second. Do we really understand what the demands of practice are and what their sporting, like what their, like even you said, position specific demands? Like, have we really checked all of those boxes? And I, and I think most of the time we haven't. And that that's probably because of the lack of know-how coupled with not going the extra mile of having that collaboration with the the sport people who do have you know have that expertise mm. it, it sort of seems like almost in a way it's it really feels like a little bit of a cheat in a way <laughs> where you where you could sort of be like well if i'm just focusing on getting them to be the most the, the strongest the fastest the most you know highest performing athlete uh, if I'm focusing on that within obviously their constraints, like if we're thinking about people that are, um, you know, they're, they're weekend warriors or they're, they're masters athletes, or there's people with other life demands. But if we're thinking about how do we get them the most, the, the most prepared for their support, the, the highest performing, it sort of seems like that if we, if we have that outcome, then we're naturally going to get some injury prevention and that that also makes a lot of sense but then it also kind of then drives us to understand that person in front of us a whole lot more where we've got to understand how they're recovering we've got to understand when they're out on the field how they're moving and it also sort of seems like mm -hmm. that's sort of the point where we can't say you're going to be back on the field in 12 8 18 weeks we can't say you know there's a set program or there's a set things that you're going to do there's potentially maybe for yeah. smaller injuries and natural history, like you do a grade one ankle sprain, we'll probably know that you're not going to be out long enough that there's going to be a huge amount of deconditioning. Uh, there probably is a smaller program that you can do, but with larger injuries, it's it's to you know it's going to sound like we do need to be very much more involved potentially than we are and where those mono interventions of here's one or here's this other won't do much by themselves or we are doing them and then just hoping the athlete or the person just kind of does the rest themselves by luck right and that that's where i think a lot of this especially in acl in the u.s like the the current paradigm for care is really atrocious because they they get discharged from physical therapy like four to six months after the injury or after surgery and then, you know, the best evidence says they shouldn't be returning for until nine to 11 months. It's like, well, what the heck are they doing between those time points? And it might be nothing. And um, and it's just like the the challenges of our insurance system. Um, but it's like, well, the, the PT gives them a home exercise program and says, hey, keep doing these exercises. And maybe they do and maybe they don't. But those exercises really need to be progressed and, and supervised over time and that's just not something that happens and, and I imagine that that's the case not just in the US and not just with ACL injuries but with a lot of injuries and, and I, I another thing that you, a point that you mentioned is maybe they're a weekend warrior and there's not some coach that you can get in touch with maybe the person is the best source of information on what the demands are and the like they're the this rich resource of information that maybe get is not tapped well enough to, to understand what their demands are and what they want to be able to do and need to be able to do and then watching them do it. Mm. Well, like leaving the leaving the clinical room in a way, going out, finding a patch yeah. of grass. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, and that that's another logistical challenge, right? You're operating in a, a crowded clinic 
with not, a mu not much space, you don't necessarily even have an open space or turf or it's too cold outside or what, uh, but if you never watch them and you just assume that they're gonna be able to, oh yeah, like they passed my return to sport tests, therefore they must be able to run and cut and juke and dodge, but I've never actually seen them do that or you know, gradually built that up, that's a big leap of faith. <laughs> but it, I'm sure it off. I'm sure it's getting taken very often because it's well, just the the environment's not set up to can be conducive to, to looking at those things. Well, I guess it depends again on the level of competition. Like if you're sending one someone out, they've passed your test, they're sort of going and they're having a bit of a kick, and they're slowly building up over a period of time. You know, depending on the level. Like if we're talking very sort of casual, I can see that being fine. And and especially when people don't want to, you know, if it's, if it's something that is quite casual, that don't want to put in that effort. Yeah, as long as they understand, hey, when you go to play for the first time, 25%, mm. wh whatever that means. I don't, I don't know what that means, but 25% <laughs> of the time, 25% of the speed, 25% of the whatever. Um, and that they, you have to be in agreement that that's what's going to happen and, and help them figure out what those numbers are and like how to gradually progress that over time to get back to a hundred percent. But Cause, cause, do those conversations happen? I don't, I don't know. Probably yeah. not. <laughs> well, I think that's, that's a good sort of point. You know, we talked about tactical or you mentioned the word tactical before um, decision-making mm -hmm. and that kind of sort of fits there quite nicely because it's, it's helping people decide what to do when and how and providing them with a heap of sort of education and I guess that sort of fits quite nicely in that point where tactical decision making really them is just sort of helping them understand their body, understand pacing, understand what's happening at a very low level, which is just don't go hell for leather, you know, purposely keep yourself low. You're going to put yourself then gradually over time as you increase that, um, you know, playing more and more of that sport, you will gradually put yourself in these more challenging positions your body will adapt i mean that's pretty much what everyone does when they're playing sport from a very young age you know you go out you mm -hmm. kick the ball you know you get a little bit better you get a little bit better and and as you get older the challenges get get higher i guess when we think about you know then more uh, advanced athletes we're thinking about the exact same thing but we're thinking more about the decision making do you make those tackles when do you make those tackles um do you feel when are you ready to to do a put yourself in a position where you're going to need to sprint the hardest you possibly can um mm -hmm. you know i think if we look at again world cup super topical not to date the podcast too much but we've got you know our star uh, matilda sam kirk with a calf injury and one of the things that we see you know on the pitch is people sort of going you know is she running as hard is she able to to push herself as much or is she playing a much a much more different game tactically because she knows that there might be, you know, the, we don't want to absolutely go and, and with the time frame test her calf uh, or right. want to hold back and only use it if it's, and, and potentially re-injure if it's going to be something that is going to be incredibly important to the game. So there's like two extremes there, but something to, yeah. to think, something to take away for, for both the most basic and the most advanced athlete. Yeah, and what a, like ridiculously challenging position to put an athlete in mm. where they especially someone who's never dealt with an injury before but even still 
like these are split second decisions that are typically made without thinking. Now you're asking the, the person to, well, before you make the right play from a winning standpoint, you have to protect that calf. And like that could mess with your performance, right? Mm. Um, and, and maybe if you've been injured before, you have a little bit more experience with that. But, but these like these split second decisions, um, especially where it's like it, it could in some cases, I think like that's what that's what contrib- can contribute to re-injury if the person is overanalyzing, you know, if they're if they're a little bit worried that if they take a wrong step, the thing's going to go pop again. So they're they're hyper vigilant about their way that they're moving or thinking twice. And that doesn't produce as authentic movement as they, it would have before the injury. And that just makes it worse. Um, so that's a, a tough, the, it's just a tough challenge to work with. And I think that kind of gets into um, like the trying to incorporate like a cognitive load into the rehab. Um, have, have you seen any of the work with uh, like Dusty Groom's um, ACL, like neuromuscular stuff? Basically, the idea that um, as you're doing your return to sport training, uh, your rehab, as well as your testing, incorporating some decision making or some dual tasking, like count backwards from 100 by 7 while you're doing this exercise. Or or even like they put virtual reality headsets on people. Uh, Just trying to like get the, the brain working a little bit more more challenged than it is if you're just saying do this set of leg extensions so because in the sport the demands are going to be there's going to be eight people flying at you and you're going to have to make the right tactical decision while you are um making sure that you're you're planting your foot well or, or whatever it is um so so trying to increase the the cognitive demand on the person in rehab to sim- simulate that to an extent um, in, in a more controlled setting, of course. Um, but the, like maybe that is part of the missing piece of why we see such high re-injury rates. Mm. It's interesting because I haven't seen those papers, but I have seen the Tabiner papers. They talk about chaos. Sure. Yeah, where it's the same, it's the, exactly the same sort of concept where it's like, you know, early injuries, we reduce chaos of the environment, the, the risk of, so, you know, a lot of that's to do with like, people running around on a, on a training environment uh, that could tackle you, that could, that could do quite, you know, put you in positions where you have to make those split second decisions, or you could put yourself in a very compromised position that you're not mm-hmm. prepared for. So, you know, you take it all back, you take out all the chaos, you stick them in a, in a blank room, no one else around in a gym with a physiotherapist or a, a podiatrist right. or a, And then you do, you do your, you do your hopping and your kicking tests and you're like, sure, you're good to go. And it's like, well, wait a second. You might be strong and powerful, but you have your nine months since you were in, in that chaotic environment. So there's a huge disconnect. Maybe, and maybe like maybe we have done our uh, our 90 degree t- cuts and our speed and agility, but we still haven't done it with an opponent or in reaction to uh, some sort of visual stimulus, like the, the chaos that you're going to experience out on the pitch. So this, it has to be more gradual and, 
uh, but it's 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 comp it's like pretty complicated. Mm. Uh, there's a lot like where where are you gonna you're not learning that in podiatry school, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've, we've, you know, in our undergrad, we're barely covering, you know, the basics of strength and conditioning. So, right. And our, our, our physiotherapy, physical therapy schools touch on it just a little bit, uh, like, like strength and conditioning, let alone that very sport. Well, that, and that's, you know, I've talked to you before about how you marry your strength and conditioning with the podiatry. Um, but that's like a very rare skill set, right? Hmm. It's, it's thankfully becoming less rare where then in the way in the way we're getting there it's um yeah it's it's very interesting because we you know we sort of talked around really one thing as well which is and we sort of mentioned it quite a bit but you know that psychological readiness as, mm -hmm. as a as a huge component because you know part of it is is getting them you know back out in the field and confident being back out in the field part of it's going to be you know having done all of this that makes them feel prepared and 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 ready to to go and exactly sort of what you're highlighting as well is that you know when we see people that are hyper vigilant they're probably going to have a less varied movement pattern and it's it's kind of counterintuitive especially in podiatry where we think about controlling movement where we're actually seeing there's a huge amount of variety in movement when you run and actually the irony is, is that mm -hmm. when we reduce variability we have more problems and that's that hypervigilance and control we've got some things here which is you know increasing cognitive demands you know with with training has got the chaos component as well of slowly adding more and more uh things to their 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 trainings more more sort of elements unpredictable elements um putting mm -hmm. them in the environment that they'll be training in as well so like often you know i'll get people to go and they will do their exercises and their movements with the team uh, i've got one person at the moment who's going and watching and, and actually doing a whole bunch of running and sprinting drills next to their team on the wednesday night you know that's fabulous um you know and they're they're a weekend warrior but it's like no you're going to get out with the team and you're going to be there and you're going to watch them and oh that's that's such a huge component to helping with the psychological recovery i think is mm. not isolating like keep maintaining that social support is there, is there anything else i mean that I mean, you've already yeah then mentioned one one sort of thing named it um quite well which is yeah the social support is there anything else that you know we think about psychological readiness and uh, getting someone back that's going to prevent that injury from from reoccurring that that would be important it's like it's a hugely under explored area i think for I mean, there, there's a lot of research on it, and I think that people are not aware of it, right? So it's like we spend so much time thinking about the biomechanics and the training load that, like, we forget that there's this whole person and that their cognitive appraisal is, like, the last step in whether the injury happens or not, right? <laughs> so, like, all of these factors, there's this situation, and then they have to make the decision whether to tackle or whether to move in this or that way. And if they are, if they're stressed or if they're, I mean, there's a million things that could be going on that could potentially make it a, a riskier situation. So addressing the, the psychological readiness in addition to the physical readiness is a huge piece that I, I perceive is very lacking in clinical practice. And there are great uh, short surveys that you can give people 
One of them is called the ACL RSI. They've adapted it for shoulders. You could probably adapt it for any body part. <laughs> just change the, the body part in the, in the wording. Um, and it's just asking people like, how, how confident are you? Uh, how worried are you of, of re-injuring again? Are you having to think about, uh, or do you feel like you have to think about your knee, your shoulder as you're participating? Like, you want to see that the person, okay, if they're passing my tests, which we we already mentioned the tests are no good, but if they're passing my tests, where is their psychology relative to that? Are they overconfident for where they're at? Are they underconfident for where they're at? Um, if there is a mismatch, what are we? What can we do about that? Maybe maybe that means we're referring them to a sports psychologist. Um, maybe that means that we just have to talk to them about what's coming up for them. Um, or, or maybe there's there are interventions that we can do, right? Like imagery or just uh, guided relaxation. Um, such a it, it's challenging because most of us are not trained psychologists, right? And we shouldn't pretend to be. Um, but there are so many things that we can do, whether it's just the the communicate the the communication aspect or the measurement aspect or the some of the interventions that we can do that are low skill. Or maybe it's like, no, this is a pretty, this is outside of our scope and we need to make sure that we're referring them to somebody who has more qualification to tackle that. Mm. I guess I guess one of the things I think about from like when we, when we look at like outside of uh, the sports literature into like the pain literature at people when, they, when they're dealing with these kinds of issues, it's, it's looking at more going, you know, giving them positive experiences with, with tasks. And I one of the mm-hmm. things from what you're explaining, what we're potentially overlooking is when we're doing exercises and movements, we're, we're, we're contributing to their, to their confidence. When we're getting them out and we're getting them running and we're getting them moving and we're giving them tasks, we're constantly giving them new bits of information about how their, how their body works and they can start right. to build that, that confidence and we slowly like increase that challenge. And right. potentially so that's, that's something easy that you can reinforce, right? Mm. Like, hey, look at how well you did this um, that they might not have noticed or, or observed that can then help them in- increase that confidence. Mm. And that can be done like throughout the the, the, right. re- the rehab process. And the... <laughs> yeah, don't wait until the end to be like, yeah, you look good. You passed my test. Like, no, that's, that's co- those confidence boosters, those helping people violate their expectations of what they're able to do, that happens from the beginning. Mm. So one of the things sort of to, to, to end on, one of the things we haven't talked about really at all is, is shoes and orthotics and, and, and where they fit. And I guess one of the things that we're, that we're seeing here is, is that, well, there isn't really like a point where we're going to see a prime, probably a, a huge primary intervention, uh, like, like changing someone's that shoes. That was and, my, yeah, that was when you that you know this was going to be something that we were going to talk about I thought I don't really see it as a primary prevention strategy like you you would have to be able to say provide evidence that if you give this orthotic or this type of footwear to everybody it's going to reduce you know you have a control group and you have an intervention group the control group you give a sham or nothing I don't know how you sham give them a sham orthotic maybe you can um, and then you give the intervention group the orthotic that you think prevents injuries. Like, 
show me the study that is going to have a, a really meaningful effect. And you mentioned that actually there maybe is one in a military population um, where, where that seems to be effective. Like that shocks me. And maybe it's true. Uh, I'd have to read the study. But on the whole, I don't, I don't see that being a, 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 a helpful strategy. So then the next line of thinking is, well, maybe we can identify the people who need the orthotic, right? Well, let, let's look at their posture. Let's look at their running mechanics. Um, let's look at their flexibility or strength and, and say, well, they have this deficit or these deficits. Therefore, this type of orthotic is going to be a good match for them. That also guarantee isn't going to work. <laughs> um, because we don't even have those risk factors. We don't even look for biomechanics and then we don't even know if orthotics are actually going to address those biomechanics, even if they were a risk factor. We just don't, we don't have that. Right. There, there's so many, there's, and, but th like, that's what people do, right? Mm. They say, I can look at you and I can look at the way that you stand or the way that you run and I can recommend this is the orthotic for you and this is going to be what's helpful. That, that's so many steps removed from anything that we have from uh, an assessment or screening standpoint and intervention standpoint to be able to say, we can identify this risk factor, then we can give them the intervention and that's gonna work better than giving the intervention, giving them a different intervention or giving the intervention to the people who don't have the risk factor. Like none of that, it, it, just, just from the stand, like we're applying it to the specific argument of orthotics or specific footwear for um, you know, that a podiatrist could prescribe, but like this is blanket true across all risk factors. Uh, like you, you just can't identify people with the risk factor and then intervene on them in a way that's better than just giving the intervention to everybody. But then again, like with, from, with, if we take exercise as the intervention, well, we know exercise as the intervention is actually pretty good with injury prevention. We can just give that to everybody. We don't have that data for orthotics. Well, the other thing is, is the numbers needed to treat are quite high. There's a cost involved. There's a number right. of things there. Yeah, so exercise is great because it's low cost. Uh, you can probably get it done in a short period of time with minimal equipment. But when you start talking about, well, we need to screen, that's expensive. We need to make these, uh, these orthotics, maybe that's expensive. Uh, so it's not, there, there are drawbacks to this as well. And maybe, Maybe like exercise, we know there's no negative side effects besides soreness. And, and maybe that is a negative side effect because like you said, if you do the Nordics and you fatigue the person and then they go have to train or compete, that you, you have to think about that. But like, we don't know, maybe you give them the orthotic and it actually makes them worse. <laughs> or, or at the very least, you give them a different footwear. You take them from a maximalist to a minimalist, minimalist shoe or vice versa and it just redistributes the forces, right? It's still the same forces, but now instead of this pattern of injuries, they have that pattern of injuries. Mm. And, and that sort of, then that sort of really kind of speaks to really exactly where, where we're sort of thinking, where it's like these kinds of interventions might be more secondary and tertiary based interventions. Because yes. you've exactly said, yeah. rather than changing, uh, rather than removing force or taking away something, we're changing it and we're identifying people that are coming in and That's, saying, well, actually, you might benefit from this. Right. That's the perfect application for it, right? So when you're talking about primary prevention, you're saying, well, we're trying, we're going to try to predict who we think is going to get injured, but in the, and we can't. 
But in the case of secondary and tertiary prevention, we already know who's hurting. Those are the perfect people where, again, we're not saying, hey, you have to wear this orthotic forever, or hey, you have to switch to this opposite footwear forever. We're just saying right now, this hurts. We know that this hurts because you're telling us this hurts. What can we do as a short to medium term modification while we're throwing the kitchen sink at you in all of these other ways? Uh, you know, what, so what, what can we modify from the environment standpoint? Uh, shoe wear, orthotic, uh, training surface, and then we can do that in the short term, see how that feels. There's immediate feedback there, right? And, and maybe, maybe it's a, a full-time change or maybe it's just an introduction of the orthotic or the different shoe wear for part of the time that you're training, whatever. And at the same time, we're monitoring your training load. We're looking at your sleep. We're looking at your nutrition. We're looking at your hydration. We're looking at your recovery strategies. We're getting you stronger. Um, taking that like, we're making sure that you're you have a good warm up uh, before you go out and engage in the sport. Um, so it's like this huge picture thing where the orthotic or footwear is one piece of it. Um, who's to say what amount of contribution that's making? Um, but it it there's certainly a psychological component, and there's a there's an immediate well that my pain is less right with this the introduction of this thing or the, the removal of this thing if they came to you already with something that you don't think is the right thing for them or, or you take it away and it feels better. So that's where I see, hey, you know, there's a place for this for sure because it can, it can immediately modify symptoms in the way that few things can, right? Mm -hmm. um, besides just remo removing <laughs> the, the training load, like sure, well, if they rest, they get better, but then that's, that's not a permanent solution. So that, that's where I, I do see the applicability. Yeah, and I, I think that sort of makes a lot of sense. And I think that sort of clears up as well where we sort of get confused because you look at the, I see, you know, quite a few people kind of go, well, I know they prevent injuries or I've seen it happen or, or um, you know, more of that anecdotal side of things because it does immediately help. And it, someone kind of keeps getting injured and then they get an orthotic and all of a sudden they're not getting injured anymore. And we can sort of see that, you know, where that sits because most of our research is primary intervention. Yeah. But then, you know, I wonder with that too, well, what else did they change? Mm. Like how well controlled was this? Did they really do all of the same mileage? And then the only thing that they changed was the shoe wear or the orthotic, or they changed the orthotic and they also were more mindful of their training load. Because um, they're spending money. <laughs> right. And, and they're, they're more like they want to make sure that this works. So their belief systems have changed. They, they trust the practitioner who prescribed the orthotic and that has improved their confidence in their body. They feel, they feel more powerful with the orthotic or, or more um, injury proof for lack mm. of a better word. And maybe that could work for or against them. Right. Um, because now maybe they think, well, I can do anything now. I can run 100 miles a week uh, because I have this orthotic that's going to bulletproof me. Or maybe it gives them the confidence that they were missing, which and it, it's a positive fa factor. But again, like when when the clinician is saying, I give my I give this orthotic to all my patients and it works, and my, my patients don't get injured. It's like, but that's not a yes. That's that's your anecdotal evidence, but it's. It's biased by, it's clouded by your observation of the situation as well as the 
the so many confounding variables that are going on with these patients and their interaction with you. Yeah, I don't always see that as a, as a particularly negative thing, though. Like, I mean, with anything, like you give give anyone an intervention, you can't, and this is kind of the problem right. I see we run into research, we can't separate it from everything else. I mean, we, we see True. people with knee pain get a surgery that's no better than placebo, but they get better after the surgery because they now have the, the confidence and the movement to, 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 to move. And so I, I don't always see that we need to separate it out. I guess I no. see the issue as telling someone that that's that, what did it that 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 is it i i agree with that 100 percent. it's like trying like like tra tracing it back to the introduction of this intervention is what fixed your pain when it's this constellation of factors like we should just be more cognizant that it that it is this constellation of factors and that's okay like let's take advantage of that right let's take advantage of this person realized that they needed some help they came to me. I am in a position where I can help them. Maybe I can introduce this orthotic, but where, but maybe I can be more careful in the narrative that I'm describing it in. Um, maybe, right? Right? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, or, or maybe like, the orthotic is the thing that we, that we, that maybe the orthotic is the thing that, that we start with and we say, well, it's very clear that you'd benefit from this. It's very clear that we'll be able to do more. You know, why don't we start here and then you know, over time we can start to sort of talk more, but you know, there are definitely patients where we go, you know, it seems like this is such a smart thing to do. And then we don't have to have the entire plan from the get go locked and loaded. And we go, this is what's going to happen along every step of the way. But I think, especially in podiatry, that's kind of what we're kind of trained to do where you, you identify the, the bad thing, you, you fix it, or you, you identify the problem and you have a really long plan. We don't, yeah, I guess we're sort of now moving to a model where we are much more thinking about the individual, much more thinking about that person and how we're helping them over time. Yeah, and I, I think that's like, yeah, of course you want to have a plan, like let lay out the plan, but then be flexible, right? And, and, and I, like the, what you just described of, well, we're gonna introduce the orthotic. That's a quick way that we can modify the symptoms to get you to back to doing the thing in, in whatever amount that is appropriate. And then simultaneously we can add some of these other things so that maybe we don't need the orthotic forever. Like, mm. I don't, I don't know. Like what, what's your, when, when you're prescribing these things, it, do you use it as a, do you present it as a permanent fix or do you present it as like a, <laughs> that's, I hate, it's funny. It, it, it's funny even saying that words out of my mouth because it's like, well, clearly it's not a permanent fix. Um, or do you present it as like, here's something that we're going to try in the short term, see how it feels while we're working on some other things. Yeah, it's absolutely, I think, always a, a, a temporary, well, we always, I would always approach it as a temporary sort of point for pretty much most people. I say always and then most. Um, but yeah, most people <laughs> will have a... It will be more of a temporary thing and then seeing what they need longer term and seeing what happens mm -hmm. naturally, whether we need that because we are changing forces, we're not removing them. Um, and so mm -hmm. we are sort of seeing how they then respond. And even if they do respond, some people we issue an orthotic and it doesn't get the result that we want and we go, bummer. But that's, and, and, and sometimes, you know, if as long as we go in with the right narrative, we explain the pros and the cons, we explain the risks, some people are quite happy to go, well, I'm glad that we covered that. 
and that we're not and we don't need sure. to worry about that anymore i like i can i know how to focus more on over here but yeah it is always uh, i always approach it uh, as as sort of a temporary measure first and then certain individuals where they've had motor vehicle accidents significant changes in their foot posture things that you know are going to be much Different more permanent story, yeah yeah are much more changeable but it's generally not sort of the the, the people that we're, we're thinking about when we're talking about the the wider research but yeah absolutely mm -hmm. it's something but i also don't focus on making a change everything all at once and i think that's kind of the the you know the narrative the orthotic the exercises the this it's trying to almost like if you've got an individual who's coming in who's sore who needs something from you it's almost like it's what do they need now and then developing that rapport right. And then what are we yeah, going to do I, in I, the future? I think that's tricky. That requires an understanding of the literature and you're marrying that with your clinical expertise to say, if I, if I tell you to change, well, for two reasons, you probably shouldn't change everything all at once because then we won't really know what effect anything had and it, it would be overwhelming, right? Uh, but how do we figure out which are the... You know, the, the orthotic is a quick thing that we can try right off the bat. Um, but then what's like the next lowest hanging fruit? And I, I, I think that you get that from your conversation with them as well as your assessment and to say, oh man, like this thing is really atypical um, from, from what I've seen before, very different between sides. Um, maybe that's something, and maybe that's something that I've seen that we can make quick changes in um like maybe you start there mm. thank you very much travis for for, for coming you. on um i think it's a, it's a it's a perfect sort of point to 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 stop because i think we've we've really kind of nailed it nailed it down you know it's it's from our chat it's it's been identifying that we we're no longer looking at a, a single cause and a single thing that we're preventing it sort of we're shifting from moving to the individual and I think sort of ending on that point where we're going narrowing it down that while we don't have the research we can still look at that individual and figure out what's going to be the best to get them moving working getting them back to a high performance you know in in, in their sport or whatever high performance looks yeah. like is, is sort of a a fantastic way that we can sort of encapsulate what we're doing when we're yeah. thinking about preventing injury and, and I think, too, it's like it's marrying that understanding of the research with the person in front of you. Right. So I know from the research that these are the biggest risk factors for an injury or a re-injury. And then how does the person look in front of me? And I can kind of say, well, they look really funky in this way. And then I know that this works in general or this is a risk factor. So even though they look pretty good on this, like I know training load is a, is a big deal. So I'm going to make sure that I'm addressing that with them along with this thing that maybe doesn't show up in the research all the time, but like that looks pretty funky to me. Yeah. And I think that's, that's just where I think we're going to end up with a lot of, you know, talking to a lot of people is we're going to go very in depth on certain things. Then we're going to come back to pretty much look at the individual, treat the individual, figure out what's working best for them. And then, and then go from there. And I think that's, I think we've just gotten a lot of covered a lot of, ground to sort of give people the ability to to think about that and talk about that a little bit more yeah and you're just you know for me as a scientist my starting point is what i can glean from the research and that's what i take in or what i would take into the encounter as opposed to just like i don't know if you don't know the research then you're just pulling things out of thin air yeah so 
if people want to find you and learn a bit more about about you, your work, watch your um, your masterclass. Where, where can people find this all? Uh, I guess the web, my website, TravisPond.com, is a good place to go. You can contact me there. I'm also well, I'm not that active on Instagram. I am in my DMs, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't post as much as I would like to. Um, but Instagram would be a good place to find me as well. My handle is fitness underscore pollinator. Perfect. Well, again, thank you again for, for coming on and, and having a chat. Thanks, Alex. I, I always appreciate chatting to you. It's, uh, it's, it's enlightening in so many ways. Perfect. Well, thank you everyone for, for, for joining us. This has been the Rehab Podiatrist Podcast. If you have any questions uh, for, for Travis, you can find him, like he said, on his website. You can send him an email. Uh, you can go to his Instagram. If you have any questions for me, you can find me, the Rehab Podiatrist, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as well, or my website, therehabpodiatrist.com. And we'll see you guys all in the next episode.